Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today, Bryce and I are going to be in Helaman 13 through 16. This is the story of Samuel the Lamanite coming to the Nephites who are really struggling, aren't they, Bryce? Yeah. And it really is a look at a righteous prophet trying to give a wicked people one last chance. And that's what he's going to start off with is it's not too late. You guys are foolish. Here's what you're doing that's horrible. And here are the consequences, but it's not too late. And then he's going to say... Here's what's going to happen with the destruction. He's going to talk about Jesus coming into the world. So we're going to do a whole lot of repent or be destroyed, and then we're going to talk a lot about Jesus coming into the world and Jesus going out of the world. Kind of three main messages, right? The first is the Nephite destruction in 400 years, or a Bactoon, or 20 Katoons. Anyway, that's fun in the cultures of their time. Um, Yahweh Messiah is coming to the Nephites, the birth and the death, that's 14. And then the Lamanites' future. He gives this really interesting prophecy of the future of the Lamanites. Bryce, part of me thinks he does it to kind of... I think he's trying to shock the Nephites. Yeah, well, I think he's trying to say, hey, it's possible to come back, look at the Lamanites. You you wicked Nephites are on the verge of destruction, and yet change is possible. You can come back, you can receive all the blessings, and he's holding up the Lamanites as an example to the Nephites that repentance and change is possible, which is a complete shift of terms here. Because they think they're so much better. Yeah. They're like, we're so much better than you guys. So, so it's funny that he's got. we've got an entire chapter here of, hey, you can do better, look at the Lamanites. Yeah. At 13, it has some really interesting words that are uh, theme words. The words I pulled out here, Bryce, are slippery, curse or cursed, hide, treasure, riches, and repent. Yeah. And it's like this overarching message that they have been chasing and going after the riches of the world. And Samuel's like, yeah, you're doing it wrong, guys. And so your treasures are going to become slippery if you don't repent. And the earth's going to swallow them up. I Just a couple verses that I really like. There's so many, but one of them is verse 31. The time cometh that he curseth your riches, and they become slippery that you cannot hold them. In the days of your poverty, you cannot retain them. Just fascinating stuff. Over and over again, he talks about the curse on the riches. Also, verse 20, the day will come that they hide up their treasures because they've set their hearts upon riches and because they have set their hearts upon their riches and will hide up treasures when they shall flee before their enemies because they will not hide them up unto me. Cursed be they and also their treasures. Essentially, Samuel is judging them, saying, God has revealed to me what you guys are up to. And it's no good. The stuff that you think is so important, you're going to lose it. And there's a message here, isn't there, Bryce? Yeah, well, I love the play on words here because the book of Helaman is brilliantly put together if you kind of weave the words together. If you go back to chapter 6, the great rebuke as the Nephites become wicked, verse 31 of chapter 6 says, Behold, Satan had got great hold upon the hearts of the Nephites. And so we're going to use that phrase, hold upon. Satan has a hold upon the Nephites' hearts. 
And so as they try to lay hold upon their treasures, they become slippery. Do you see the play on words here? And yet, if you go back to chapter 3, you've got another play on words, which is that the Word of God is something we need to lay hold on. So, I think the message here is, if you allow Satan to grab and lay hold on your heart, it's going to confuse you as to what things you can lay hold on. Because as you try and lay hold on the riches that Satan has deceived you will make you happy, they're going to become slipperier and slipperier and slipperier. And I don't know so much that it's the riches that are slippery as much as it's the satisfaction and the happiness that you think the riches are going to bring into your life. That's what's slippery. And yet, if you would not let Satan get a hold of your heart, if instead you will lay hold upon the Word of God, that is a riches that will never be slippery, because it will be constant in your life. That's what the promise is. If you lay hold on the Word of God, it will be ever faithful. I love the Savior's parable about the barley bread. You remember when he has 5,000 people to feed, and he says, what do you have? How can we possibly feed this many, Lord? He says, what do you have? Well, we have, a, we have some barley bread, and we have a lad here who has two small fishes. And yet it was enough for Jesus when he is part of the equation to fill them. And not just fill them, but give them more than they could handle. And I think if you lay hold on the right kind of things, if you lay hold on the things that really do bring eternal happiness, that is a happiness that will never be slippery. In the days of darkness, in your anger, in depression, in heartbreak, that is the source you can always go to for happiness and peace and comfort. You know, Bryce, this reminds me of the Word of God right? In in the iron rod story. So Helaman 329, whoever will lay hold upon the word, which is quick and powerful. And it's also likened into a sword. It seems like in that verse, right? It divides yep. asunder the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil. It will lead a man of Christ in a straight and narrow course. And yet these people are chasing after something they can't hold on to, which reminds me of the building. It's almost like this is a meta theme that's right. kind of woven through the text. And the irony back in Lehi's dream is, I, I don't know how anyone really got to the building. I think that's an image there. I, if you ever let go of the rod, you fall into the river. No one ever really gets to the building. I think it's a figment of your imagination. I think we think you can be happy some other way. But the reality is, if you let go of that rod, you're going to drown in that river. And that's what Helaman is trying to say, is you are after blind guides. You are following blind guides. He's basically going to say, you're on a snipe hunt. You are trying to find happiness through sin, and you never will. It will be as slippery as anything else, because as soon as you try to lay hold on happiness through sin, it will slip right out of your fingers. But if instead you will lay hold upon the Word of God, it will lead you on that straight and narrow course. The 13th chapter does say this, 
And I think this is what you're talking about. Look at verse 38. You're, Tell me he's not describing a snipe hunt here. I, I think, he's I, basically saying, you foolish idiots are but, on a snipe hunt. By the way, Bryce, uh, do you, do, just for fun, will you just define a snipe hunt? Okay. If you ne- if you were never a boy or a girl scout growing up, if you didn't go to young men's or young women's camping activities, you may not know what a snipe is. I know Disney's up. They play it. So I know it's not just an LDS cultural thing, but I, I, I was fooled. I was a young deacon. We were on our very first camp out. And the leader said, all right, as soon as it gets dark, we're going to go snipe hunting. It's the funnest thing in the world. And he described these snipes, and they were like, oh, I've got to go get one. And then as soon as it gets dark, we all spread out, and we start snipe hunting. And our leader just jumps into the bushes and said, I've got one. I've got one. Hurry, see if you can get one. There's lots of them out here in these bushes. And, you know, not wanting to be an idiot, we all pretend to see a snipe. And we jump into the bushes and said, I think I have one. And, and the reality is there are no snipes. It's just a joke. It's a joke to get people embarrassed. Let's go snipe hunting. But there really is a true side to this in that so many people are searching for an imaginary happiness, and they're pretending to catch it. I vividly remember stories about people saying, oh, I caught a snipe. I even had one leader that had a bag. And I don't know how he got the bag. I don't know what was in the bag, but it was moving around like crazy. And he said, I got a snipe, but I'm going to let it go. Fooled you. He, he got us because he got us to believe that he caught a snipe. And what Samuel's trying to say here is that some people, some of us have been fooled into thinking that a happiness is obtainable through the wrong means. And it's just not. It's just not. You're on a snipe hunt. And no matter how much you think people have caught happiness, there are no snipes. And that's kind of what this verse is saying. exactly what he's saying. Verse verse 38. This is Helaman 1338. Behold, your days of probation are past. You procrastinate the day of your salvation until it is everlastingly too late. Your destruction is made sure. Yea, for you have sought all the days of your lives for that which you could not obtain. You have sought for happiness and doing iniquity, which thing is contrary to the nature of that righteousness which is in our great and eternal head. This reminds me of Alma 4110. Yep. Wickedness Wickedness never never was was happiness. Never was. Never will be. And I think the Book of Mormon's definition of happiness might be a little bit different than the world's definition. And I think the Book of Mormon's message of happiness is this idea of real meaning, life that has a purpose and a meaning and a direction with the Spirit, in God's presence, feeling Him with you. Now, we're not always going to have great days, you know, like right now, I'm having kind of a rough day. We have bad days, right? I'm sure Samuel was having a bad day when they were slinging their darts at him. And it goes back to what President Nelson's been talking about in terms of joy. You can have joy even in the presence of difficult days. Joy isn't the emotion we often associate with happiness or being in a good mood. Joy is an internal satisfaction and internal peace that comes from the gospel. If you remember back in our podcast for Alma 32, if you will grow the tree of your testimony, there will come a day where that fruit will feed you. And that's the joy of the gospel. It's when you have a testimony, and the fruit of that testimony satisfies a hunger that is deep down inside of you. Now, Satan's great imitation is that you can find that happiness in worldly ways, in shortcuts and cheats. 
You don't have to pay the gospel price to be happy. Take, for example, human intimacy between a man and a woman. The world says, hey, you can have that without commitment, without compassion, without covenants, without marriage, without long-term obligations. And the Lord says, no, you can't. If you want the peace of the gospel, you have to follow the Lord's instruction. I think in the West, it's been turned into a commodity. Intimacy has been something that can be translated into something we can buy and sell, which reminds me of the Mahan principle. We're going to convert life and, and sacred things into money. I really do think that these verses really do apply. Samuel's trying to say that you guys are trying to chase something good the wrong way. It's just a fundamental human condition that we all struggle with. And this is what President Kimball talked about. In his experience counseling people, he said, I see oftentimes sin is just people trying to get good things the wrong way. And so I can see a merciful Father in heaven looking at us with this parental care and fatherly regard, and he just wants us to be happy. And so he sends us Samuel's. Speaking of Samuel's, Mike, related to that, back in verse 29, he brings up a very interesting phrase. He says, how long will you suffer yourselves to be led by foolish and blind guides? Now, that's an image that I want everyone to see. It just, you are following a blind guide. You're on a snipe hunt. You're chasing something that doesn't exist and never will. And when other people pretend it does, don't believe them. And then the second part of that is you're following a blind guide. They can't even see where they're going. Why are you following them? That relates so much to today. He says in verse 33, (laughs) or excuse me. Go back a couple verses. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, when a prophet comes in, you cast him out. You won't listen to the seers who see. And then verse 27, if a man come among you and say, do this, and there is no iniquity and do that, you shall not suffer. And he'll say, walk after the pride of your own hearts and walk after the pride of your eyes and do whatever your heart desireth. If a man shall come among you and say this, ye will receive him and say that he is a prophet. In other words, You'll follow people who tell you what you want to hear, who confirm that the false happiness that you're striving for is obtainable. In other words, the guy who holds up the bag with the snipe shaking inside of it saying, hey, it really is possible. You can have happiness in sin. That you consider a prophet. But a real prophet with seric eyes who kind of sometimes lambasts you and rebukes you and says, your ways are sinful and you need to change, and that's a painful message. We can sometimes blow those people off and say, no, I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so the two messages are related. Who you choose to follow and what you're hunting for are almost always related. And so I think Samuel's asking every modern-day reader to examine their life Are you on a snipe hunt? Are you pursuing a happiness that will not make you happy? Now, let me just share a thought from C.S. Lewis that I've loved over the years. He talks about the difference between being in love and love. Being in love is the emotion. It's the thrill. But that's all it is, is an emotion and a thrill. But then C.S. Lewis says the dying away of the thrill leads to a quieter, more majestic, longer-lasting love. And it's the people who hold on to the thrill 
that never get to know the true happiness that marriage is built on. If you're holding on to the thrill and the excitement, here's what happens. You get caught up in the thrill of being in love, and then when that emotion dies, which it always will, it's just an emotion, the newness is going to die. And when it dies, people conclude that they're no longer in love with their spouse. The thrill has gone out, and they've never discovered the quieter, longer-lasting love that should replace it. They think thrills are the way their life should operate. And so when that happens, they end up running away from their marriage— and looking for something else that's thrilling and exciting, not realizing that the thrill's going to run out of that newer relationship just like it ran out of the old one. If you make thrills and excitement your pursuit, you're ne- it's a snipe hunt. You're never going to catch it, and it's going to die, and then you're going to move on, and you're going to look back and have a wrecked trail of relationships because you're on a snipe hunt. You're chasing something that that either doesn't exist or won't last. But the gospel says, no, there is a better, quieter, more thrilling, more satisfying happiness out there. And it comes by obedience to God's prophets. And there's a price to be paid to get it. But when you pay that price, It is long-lasting. It will be there in the darkness. It will be there in the light. Don't be on a snipe hunt. If you are chasing a happiness and you can't catch it, re-examine who you're following and what you're trying to achieve because there is no happiness in wickedness. Hopefully we all have a Samuel in our life that will sit us down and say, Hey, are you not happy? Maybe there's some ways to think about what you're doing. I like what Elder Maxwell said where he says pain a lot of times is an invitation for us to get revelation. Like we're just not happy. Let's analyze that pain and look at it. I want to talk a little bit, Bryce, about this phrase about slippery riches that really parallels ancient understanding of the Bible, which really helps us to understand how the Bible was textualized. And what I mean by this is the Book of Mormon is this intersection of prophecy and production of texts. There's kind of two extremes in biblical scholarship of how we got the Bible. On one hand, it's God wrote it, right? That that the pen was held by Solomon, but the entire Book of Proverbs, God just kind of wrote the Book of Proverbs, or that it's all God-breathed. Uh, totally 100% inspired. And I love Joseph Smith gives us some wiggle room in there, doesn't he, with it's as far as it's translated correctly. And on the other end of the spectrum is what's called the minimalist position. And that position is that the Bible is totally just a product of men's hands. There's no inspiration. Uh, Hardcore minimalists will even say things like, it's plagiarized. It's plagiarized from other cultures. And so what the Book of Mormon does, to me, it really gives us a ground where we can see that men are working with their culture, and they're working with texts that they understand, but they're also inspired, and that both are happening. It's back to what the Lord said to Joseph Smith in section one, I speak unto men according to their understanding. Yeah, yeah. So, for example... um, the story in Les Mis can be told in general conference and be filled with the Spirit, but the story of Les Mis was written by a person, but yet 
is it scripture? Well, it is in the sense that the Spirit testifies of the truths that are in there. So what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about an ancient Egyptian text. And in this text, there's some stuff in there that's also in the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith never would have had access to this Egyptian text. It's really not discovered till like 1924. Uh, and it was written in what's called the New Kingdom, which is sometime between uh, 1550 B.C., and basically 1069. So a really old text that pops up in the Book of Mormon. But I'm I'm sharing this because critics of our church say things like, well, the slippery treasure stuff is just Joseph Smith's production. Joseph Smith lived in a world where people were seeking for money. And Joseph was even hired by a guy, right, Bryce, when he was young to go and, and dig for money. And so some historians say things like, this is just coming out of upstate New York, 19th century thinking. And so here it is. It's this document called the Instructions of Amenemope or Amenemope. I've heard him pronounce both ways. Now, in general terms, the Jewish cultural and religious adaptation of Egyptian materials may be illustrated by the parallels between the instructions of Amenemope and portions of the book of Proverbs. What happened was This document, The Instructions of Amenemope, is a collection of wise sayings. It's wisdom literature that comes out of the New Kingdom in Egypt, and it was published by this Egyptian scholar named Budge, Wallace Budge, in 1923. And it was found inside this statue of Osiris, this wisdom literature that's really, really old. And it's published. It's also in the Louvre. Uh, Budge mentioned a couple of parallels between this text and the book of Proverbs, A guy by the name of Kevin Barney, and we'll put this in the show notes, Kevin Barney has found 16 strong parallels between this text and the book of Proverbs. To me, there's no question that the book of Proverbs is wisdom tradition, it's wisdom text in the Old Testament that also is from this Egyptian text. And and the way I contextualize this, this data is this, this wisdom literature that was in Egypt is reflected in the book of Proverbs, and I do believe that the Egyptian text comes first. Just mathematically, right? Solomon is the son of David. David is 1000 BC. Well, this text is probably 13, 1400 BC, way before. Now, could there be a common source that the author of Proverbs and this Egyptian text are using? That's one theory. But to me, I have no problem with the authors of Proverbs using this because it's good stuff. And just know that the Book of Mormon, to me, solves some of these riddles. Like the minimalist scholars are going to say, well, the Book of Proverbs is just cribbed from this Egyptian text. Um, I also see it can be inspired. In other words, could the Egyptian text also be inspired? And I think absolutely. You've got Joseph in Egypt and Moses in Egypt. You've got the Book of Mormon coming out of this Egyptian culture. And so all that being said, I'm just trying to illustrate this idea that here's Samuel, and he's literally quoting these instructions. So I'm just going to read this short little bit right out of the instructions of Amenemope, and this is what it says. Do not set your heart upon riches, because as soon as the day breaks, they will not be in your house. Although their places can be seen, they're not there, because when the earth opens up its mouth, it levels him and swallows him up, and they'll plunge into the deep. They will make for themselves a great hole which suits them, and the riches themselves will sink into the underworld, or they will make themselves like the wings of geese, and they will fly up to the sky. Now, that's the same message. 
that this is Bryce. This is why I geek out and love the Book of Mormon. Like Joseph doesn't have access to this stuff. Did Samuel? I think so. I think there was this tradition in wisdom literature that was really, really old. It pops up in Proverbs and it pops up here in Helaman. Now, here's what's fascinating. Joseph doesn't have access to this. So to me, I see this as in the Nephite culture, they have the brass plates. The brass plates have Egyptian understanding of Scripture. See, I'm I'm trying to connect these dots here. Don't we all do that, Mike? I mean, when we get into a block of Scripture and the story's being told and the story you know from the past— Boy, you you bring it up. And, Here it is. And so I think it's very clear that Samuel is using what's in his heart and soul to say, here's what's going on today, and we all do that. I would have no problem quoting Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, because that's such an inspiring story. So I just think it testifies that truth was resonating in Samuel's heart, and he had multiple sources of that truth. He read And when it came to, he saw sin in the lives of the Nephites, and he quoted to them truth that was in his heart. And I wouldn't be surprised that the scribes and the priests that knew the brass plates are listening to him, and the bell goes off, and they're like, oh, I know what he's doing. And then I know exactly what he's quoting. Yeah, and the second thought is, yeah, we're doing that. And, And by the way, I do that when I teach teenagers. I will reference a movie that they've seen. I might reference Star Wars or something. I might even do my little Yoda imitation and be like, yep. do or, or say, do not. <laughs> you know, when a student is having a tough day, I'll just simply say, sharp rocks at the bottom, bring it on. Yeah. And anyone who's seen that movie knows exactly what I'm referring to. But I'm not saying that that movie is inspired. What I'm saying is that one line in that movie really inspired me. Let me pass that inspiration on to you. Yeah. And so if Samuel here is quoting an ancient Egyptian text, or at least the idea that he may have gotten out of an ancient Egyptian text, it shows that Heavenly Father inspires people in all ages with the similar messages. To me, it's almost word for word. I know this isn't a podcast on Proverbs, but if you read, like like I said, Kevin Barney outlines 16 parallels. You read these texts in Proverbs, and you read this Egyptian text, and you're like, Man, it's the same stuff. And I think this is what gives Latter-day Saints a lot of freedom. There is good stuff in Egypt. And what I mean by that is the wisdom tradition and even some of the ways that they understand things. Joseph, like I said, comes out of this, and so does Moses. And so the Book of Mormon just opens up a lot of containers to help us understand the Bible that were not for the Book of Mormon, we would just be lost. And so that's a little tidbit. I really like it. Is that the main message? No, the main message is... Don't snipe hunt. Yeah. And follow seers who see, and then you'll obtain a happiness that's lasting. Yeah. So let's jump to chapter 14, Mike, and I like this one because he uses signs. He says, let me give you signs. And you kind of get the impression from the Bible that signs are bad. You know, Jesus says it's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And I think what he's trying to say is, don't look for a sign as proof. You have to have faith. But here Samuel says, let me give you some signs. And so before we jump into the signs, why does he give you signs? Why does the Lord sometimes give signs? Well, one reason that Samuel suggests is signs are given to help your faith, to help your belief. 
Look at verse 12, for example. At the end of 12, he says, This sign is given to the intent that you might believe on his name. Jump down to verse 28. These signs and these wonders should come upon all the face of the land to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of man. 29. And this is the intent that whosoever will believe might be saved, that whosoever will not believe a righteous judgment shall come upon them. And you get kind of get that idea that these signs are given so that you believe. And I, there, there's also some hints in those verses about another reason, and that is signs are given to leave you without excuse. They leave you without excuse. Notice what he said there in verse 29. This is the intent that you might believe that whosoever will not believe a righteous judgment might come up against them. The Lord warned you. They are to leave you without excuse. Jump to chapter 15, look at verse 17. Notwithstanding the many mighty works which I have done among them. In other words, those witnesses, those signs, those wonders stand as a witness to your destruction. So two reasons the Lord gives signs. One is to help us believe, and the other is to leave people without excuse. So in your personal life, the Lord does in fact give us signs, and there are many signs to help us believe. And one of the ultimate signs is the Book of Mormon. The Lord says, look, I'm going to restore my truth, and then let me give you a Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the sign of the restoration to help you believe that God has, in fact, restored truth in the latter days. Here's the Book of Mormon. And then to the world, the Book of Mormon leaves them without excuse. You cannot explain where the Book of Mormon came from. It leaves you without excuse. So we have that same concept today. And yet in the text— it seems like the Lord also gives them a way out if they want to choose not to believe. Like later they're going to say, well, they may have guessed this so well, or they may have even thought that some of these were naturalistic signs, right? Even though the Lord gives us signs, I think he also gives us this option where we can choose. I really like this verse, Helaman fourteen twenty eight. Uh, because it talks about this, which Bryce, you you read it, right? The angel said to me that that many shall see greater things than these to the intent that they might believe that these signs and these wonders should come to pass upon all the face of the land to the intent that there should be no cause for unbelief among the children of men. It almost sounds like it's taking away agency, but I just don't think that's the case because later, the the naysayers are going to say, well, Samuel may have guessed this, but, you know, he, he was a really lucky guesser. In other words, at the end of the day, we have to choose. It reminds me of the story in John where Jesus raises Lazarus and the chief priests and Pharisees get together and they say, this is a problem. We have a dead guy walking around testifying of Jesus. I know, let's kill him. And I just find that fascinating. In other words, we have to choose even in the midst of great signs. So, and I also got to say, Bryce, to me, these signs are pretty spectacular. A lot of times, in, especially in the Old Testament, the prophecies are kind of out there in the future, but here it's a tight window. I mean, these are testable. It's just in a few years, he stands up and says, in this many years, this is going to happen. And by the way, when he dies, it's going to be dark. And for a lot of the listeners, this is like in their lifetime. So, you know, Samuel can be tested here. Yeah. So let's talk about the two things he does predict. In verse 3, it's the sign of his birth, and then down in verse 14, it's the sign of his death. Now, I love the symbolism here, because what is the sign of his birth? Verse 3 and 4, 
it's light when there should have been darkness. He fills the darkness with light. And then the sign of his death is darkness when there should be light. So verse 20, the sun shall be darkened and refuse to give his light unto you and the moon and the stars, and there shall be no light upon the face of the land, even from the time that he shall suffer death for the space of three days to the time that he shall rise again from the dead. So when he's born, when he comes into the world, there's light when there's supposed to be darkness. And then when he leaves the world, when he's killed, when he's cut off, There's darkness when there is supposed to be light. Now, if that isn't a symbol of Jesus, if that isn't someone waving the arms saying, do you catch the vision here? Jesus is light. Jesus fills us with light. Think about what this means to our life. The birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus into my life means I get light where there has been darkness. He fills the darkness. He overwhelms the darkness. You want darkness to go away, get the Savior into your life. Fill your life with Jesus. And the opposite is also true, right? The opposite is also true, that if you try and push him out, if you say, there's no room in my life for Jesus, then don't be surprised if the light that you did have is replaced with darkness. Because what's happening on the earth is symbolic of what happens in our lives. When Jesus comes into our life, there is light where there has been darkness in the past. And when we push Jesus out of our life, there is darkness where there used to be light. The things that used to be filled with light are often filled with darkness because he is gone and he is the source of light. I really like verse 13. I want to talk a little bit about verse 13 and verse 12. But verse 13 says, If you believe on his name, you will repent of your sins, that thereby you may have a remission of them through his merits. And the Book of Mormon really teaches this idea that it's only in and through Christ that we're saved. We talk a lot about what we must do. And in church, that's really what we do. We talk a lot about our role, but it's the merits of Jesus who saves us. And this reminds me of a verse. This is where Lehi is talking to his son, Jacob. In verse 3 of 2 Nephi 2, it says, Thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Lehi doesn't say, Jacob, I know you're going to be saved. I know you're going to be redeemed because you're so awesome. But he says, it's because the Redeemer is awesome. And then verse 8, no flesh can dwell in the presence of God, save it be through the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah, who layeth down his life according to the flesh. Now, in that verse, he's called the Holy Messiah. The word Messiah, Mashiach, means to be an anointed one. And that's, in a Jewish context, what they would have understood Jesus to be. And notice the way that Helaman is translated. So if you go back to Helaman 14.12, look what it says. This is Samuel. He says, And also that you might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth. To me, this is Mike Day Midrash here. To me, I don't think on the plate text it would have said Jesus Christ. I don't think that name would have had significance to the Nephites, because Christ, Christos, is a Greek word. I think probably what it said, you know, like I said, we don't know, but I think what Samuel probably said to them is that you might know of the coming of Yeshua, 
Mashiach, or Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God. And Joseph, as he's translating this, uh, I think he's looking at this and he's, you know, like I said, I'm just guessing here. I think he looks at this and he's like, okay, I'm putting this in the language of a modern audience. We're back to DNC section one, where God speaks to us after the manner of our language. And I'm not going to use that phrase. I'm going to pinpoint this. I'm going to identify this as Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we think that Christ was like his last name, like my name is Mike Day, but he was, he was Yeshua. He was, he was in the Greek, we call him Jesus, but, uh, if I was Spanish, Bryce, we'd call him Jesus. Yeah, and it's the same guy. And so, in other words, this is just a translation thing, not a plate text thing or a Samuel thing. Sometimes we're accused of having anachronisms in the Book of Mormon because it says Jesus Christ. And I just want to draw this out that I think Samuel is just identifying him in their language, and then Joseph Smith is translating it to our language. And as a translator, that's kind of what you're supposed to do is to make the text make sense. And while we're throwing out verses that talk about the merits of Christ and being saved through the merits of Christ, one of my favorites is in Doctrine and Covenants section 45. I don't know how you portray um, your final judgment, but it can be kind of portrayed as a court scene, and that I walk in there to be tried, and at some point the evidence against me is going to be presented. I think a lot of people say, well, here's all my mistakes. All the evidence to not save me is going to be presented, and then all the evidence to save me, all the good things. But the reality is I don't think there's a chance that the good things that I've done can overcome the tarnish that comes by presenting the bad things that I've done. So if you've got this perception that there's going to be a court scene— And the Lord's going to say, well, save him because he did all these good things. At some point, someone's going to say, well, what about all these other things that he did? And if you're thinking that I can outweigh the bad with my good, and that's how I merit salvation, you've missed the point. So let let me portray the scene. Jesus is my defense attorney. He's my advocate. And here's his case, right? So let's just picture all the evidence against me has just been presented. So the prosecution, so to speak, has presented evidence against me. And now Jesus, my defense attorney, is going to stand up and plead my case. Now, if you think that his case is, yeah, he did those things, but he repented, and here's all the good things that he did, that's not the case that Jesus is going to present. You ready to hear his case? So here's my defense before God. Jesus stands up. So this is section 45, verse 3. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. Here's my defense before God. Father, behold the sufferings of death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father... Spare him, because he believes on me. In other words, my defense isn't that I deserve salvation. My defense is that Jesus deserves salvation, and he says, let Bryce have it, because he believes in me. Now, what could the verdict possibly be to that defense? Lord, look at my life look at my accomplishments, and save him because I love him. 
and I want him in my kingdom. That's being saved by the merits of Jesus and the merits of the Messiah. Beautiful statement. And and if we believe in him, verse 13, then we'll repent. And why? Because we understand. And that word belief, at least in the Greek, it's this reciprocal trust. Like we trust him and we he brings us back in. And I love that, Bryce, where he says, don't save Bryce based on Bryce's good or bad things. Bring him in because of me. To me, from a ritual perspective, it's as if the Son of God puts his robe on us and says to the Father, look at Bryce the way you look at me. And then it ends, ritually, the king would be embraced by the God anciently. He, they would end in an embrace and a banquet, and they would come back into his presence. And so to me, that's kind of what I see in verse 16 and 17, right? This is this, now, Bryce, I don't know how it's going to work out, so I'm just going to throw this out there, but this is kind of how I see it. God has his arms open, and he wants us all to come in, right? So verse 16 the death of the Messiah brings to path the resurrection and the redemption of all mankind from the first death, that's the spiritual death, for all mankind by the fall of Adam are cut off from the presence of the Lord. They're considered as dead, both to things temporal and to things spiritual. There's some wiggle room in there and considered as dead, right? When the Holy Ghost is with me, I am alive spiritually. Um, but this considered as dead, is an, that's an interesting phrase. Verse 17, the resurrection of Christ redeems mankind and even all of them, all mankind, and brings them back into the presence of the Lord. So Bryce, wouldn't you say that the atonement of Christ overcomes physical as well as spiritual death, which leads me to think when people aren't brought into his presence, this is just my packaging of this. I think it's not that God says, I don't want you. It's like, I think they're saying, no, I don't want to remain here. I don't want to remain in God's presence. Yes, and this is one of the biggest false doctrine. And and I hear this spread throughout the church. So let's correct this. Let's make sure we correct it. We have this idea that Mortality brought spiritual death and physical death, and the atonement has to overcome spiritual death and physical death. And quite often in the church, we teach that overcoming physical death is a free gift. The resurrection is a free gift, but overcoming spiritual death only happens if you repent, and that is false doctrine, because everyone overcomes spiritual death in that they are brought back into the presence of the Father. There it is in print, in print, verse 17, all mankind. He bringeth all mankind back into the presence of the Father. If spiritual death is to be cut off from God, then you overcome spiritual death by being brought back into the Father. And now comes the critical moment. Jesus brought you back into the presence of the Father. His atonement is 100% complete. There is not a soul on this planet that will not overcome physical death and be resurrected and then overcome spiritual death and be brought back into the Father's presence. Jesus did his assignment, and he brought everyone back to the Father's presence. Now comes, Mike, that critical moment. Do you choose to stay? Do you want to stay in his presence? And those who don't, verse 18 of Helaman 14, die again. That's the second death. Everyone overcomes the first spiritual death. But those who walk away from God 
after Jesus brought them back into his presence are the ones that die the second time. And that's a very interesting concept. Not God kicking you out, but you walking out. Um, there's an interesting twist on our normal understanding of the pre-mortal life narrative. In the book of Jude, um, we typically say that Satan was cast out. He was kicked out. Um, but there's this interesting word in the book of Jude. It doesn't say the word cast or kicked or thrown. I love this play on words here. I'm in Jude chapter 1, verse 6. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. They left. That's kind of how I see it. And that's how I see it, that Jesus brought everyone back into the presence of the Father, completely victorious over death and sin. And then you get to choose. Do you stay in his presence? Do you feel comfortable in his presence? It's kind of a different view. I think sometimes we think that at least the way I've thought of it is, you know, I, can I get in? Please, can I get in? And I, I remember a, a talk by Brad Wilcox. I think it's called His Grace is Sufficient, where he talks about a young man who's kind of struggling and his parents get him to decide to go to EFY. And he's there and he's like there one day and he calls his dad and he says, dad, get me out of here. And it's, you know, he just could not be there in that presence. And and I think about that a lot. And I think, you know, where's my heart? And am I, am I someone who wants to be there? And to me, there's a couple times where this pops up in the Book of Mormon where different authors say, I would that all might be saved. I think that's what all the prophets want. They're eternal optimists. And I think that's one way, you know, if you have the spirit is when you see somebody who's struggling, but in your heart, you're like, oh, they're just, they're just seeking happiness the wrong way. And in your heart, you say, I would that they might be saved. And we just kind of have that hope. And, and I see this with Samuel here. There's an interesting passage here in verse 25 where Samuel says, hey, oh, by the way, in the midst of this darkness, the graves are going to be opened and it's going to yield up their dead and the saints are going to appear unto many. And later, when Jesus talks to the Nephites, he gets them all together and he, he gets the records out there. He says, get the records. And he looks at Nephi and he says, did you guys write this down? And Nephi is like, no, we didn't. And Jesus says, you know what? You that should, was significant. You should write that down. Now, there's some scholarship on this. One thought is that, you know, perhaps because uh, Samuel was not in this lineage, that they just don't look at his prophecies the same. And and Mormon's like, oh, okay, I got to get this in there. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. But, you know, I find this very interesting that Samuel stands up and he says this. They didn't put it in, but then it is put in later. And I think one of the messages to me is, in the time of your greatest darkness, three days of darkness people are dead. There's that passage. In other words, maybe the Lord is closer to you than you think when you're in the pit of despair. And what a great message. I can't even imagine in three days of darkness, if my mom could come to me and say, Mike, it's going to be okay. It's a pattern of Jesus that in darkness, he sends light, he sends hope. And of all the people who could comfort us in a dark, dark time, it's the people whose loss created a great darkness, and they're ending that darkness. So clearly this other darkness can go away as well. Yeah. Beautiful moments. And it, again, it just comes back to the victory of Christ, 
get him into your life, it will turn darkness into light. If you push him out of your life, don't be surprised if the light that you had turns dark, because Jesus is that light. Yeah, so there's, like we talked about earlier, there's three main messages of Samuel. The first is the Nephite destruction, which is coming, the the possibility that in 400 years they'll be destroyed. The second is chapter 14, the sign of his birth and death. And then the final one is the future of the Lamanites. And like I said, I think this is Samuel trying to say, he's trying to shock the Nephites, because how shocking is it if a prophet of the Lord stands up and says, oh, you guys think you're it? Yeah, you're not it. You should be more like the Lamanites. Yeah, and I, I really do think it shocks them. But it also starts off with some really troubling verses, at least to the modern mind. And so if you look here, he, he offers them this, this sad prophecy. It's verse 1 where he says, if you guys don't repent, your houses will be left desolate. Now, for your house to be desolate means you don't have children. Your lineage, your, your house is desolate, right? Your line is cut off. And then verse 2 is very similar to the message that Jesus gave to the people in Jerusalem, right? This idea that the women, you've got to go and pray that it's not in a day when you're nursing because it's not going to be well for you. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that that prophecy that Jesus gave was actually written in a letter and sent throughout the saints in Jerusalem in 70 AD as they fled to this place called Pella. They fled Jerusalem um, in the midst of the Roman armies coming. Why? Why did they flee? Well, they listened to a prophet. There was a prophet out there that spread this out and said, we've got to leave. And so right here, Samuel's quoting the same stuff. So this must be some old, old type of warning. But then go to verse 3. Woe unto this people who are called the people of Nephi, except they repent, when they shall see these signs and wonders. For behold, they have been a chosen people of the Lord, yea, the people of Nephi has he loved, and also hath he chastened them, yea, in the days of their iniquities hath he chastened them, because he loveth them. And this is the troubling verse. But behold, my brethren, the Lamanites hath he hated, because their deeds have been evil continually. And so the question is, well, is this an emotional text? Is this this God loving the Nephites and hating the Lamanites? Now we're back to this. I'm going to nerd out a little bit about this. This is another place where the Book of Mormon and biblical scholarship come together and they sit at the same table. And what we think is going on is that this is indicative of a suzerain treaty between a ruler and his people. There's strong evidence that a lot of the Book of Deuteronomy is textualized in a way that reflects Assyrian treaties. In the 7th century BC, Assyria was the big gorilla on the block, and they owned everybody, and everybody had to pay them tribute. And the Assyrian treaties would say things like, if you love me, you will do this. You will pay this tribute. You will follow these laws. And everyone who loves the king shall receive of his love and be protected. And in these treaties, there were blessings and there were cursings and they followed specific patterns. And these treaties, at least in, from the biblical scholarship perspective, are indicative and reflected in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is constructed like a vassal treaty between a group of people and a king. 
But in the context of Deuteronomy, the king is Yahweh. Yahweh is the king. And they swear their love to him. In fact, there's even a passage in Deuteronomy that says that we have to love the Lord, that we have to love him and obey him. And there's another chapter in there full of blessings and cursings in the 28th chapter. And so in biblical scholarship, in the minimalist position, the people that don't look at the Bible as inspired, they say that the author of Deuteronomy is just cribbing a vassal treaty. On the other hand, there's the other position on the extreme. The scholarship has no bearing on this. This is all penned by Moses. And then there's this middle ground. And I'm kind of sitting and swimming in this middle ground. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I think, yes, there was a Moses. Yes, he did talk to the Israelites. But was this textualized in a way that they could understand? They knew these vassal treaties, at least the scribes and priests that were contextualizing Moses's words. And so to craft the prophet Moses in this context of this vassal treaty was a way that they would have understood God and law and blessings and cursings and the whole idea of all this stuff. So what does this have to do with God loving the Nephites and hating the Lamanites? Well, everything. Uh, John Welch wrote this interesting document called Love and Hate in Helaman 15. And they write, many struggle with this idea that God would hate a specific group of people. Oftentimes, modern readers of the scriptures, which are ancient texts, they struggle understanding the meaning because they read something ancient through their modern eyes, assuming things that are not so. Brigham Young commented on this when he exhorted the saints. He said, do you read the scriptures, my brother and sisters, as though you were writing them a thousand or two thousand or five thousand years ago? Do you read them as though you stood in the place of men who wrote them? If you do not feel thus, it is your privilege to do so. And so when it comes to love and hate, well, here it is. Few genres from the ancient world stand out so prominently as these Near Eastern vassal treaties, which we've talked about. Um, in, right in the treaty, the, the ancient Assyrian treaty, this is a phrase that comes right in there. It says, if you do not love the crown prince, warns the Assyrian treaty of Ezra-Hadon, then may assure the God of gods, the king of gods, who determines the fates, decree for you an evil, an evil fate. In this ancient context, loving the king with one's entire heart signified the severance of all contact with other political powers. Hence, Israel's command to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and soul and thy might, presented in Deuteronomy, seems to refer to a political commitment rather than an emotional attachment. Now, we see the same thing in Hosea chapter 9. If you go to Hosea chapter 9, verse 15, it says, And all there the Ephraimites' wickedness is in Gilgal. For there I hated them. For the wickedness of their doings, I will drive them out of mine house. Hosea 9, 15. As demonstrated in this passage, the Ephraimites' wickedness resulted in their loss of the blessing associated with having God as their king. The Lord hated the Ephraimites for the wickedness of their doings because in the context of ancient Near Eastern treaties, these acts were tantamount to political insurrection. With this observation in mind, the problematic passage in Helaman 15, where Samuel the Lamanite describes God's love and hatred, seems to convey a specific nuance derived from the world of antiquity. When Samuel presents his inspired message to the people of Nephi, he declares, quote, They, the Nephites, have been a chosen people of the Lord, yea, the people of Nephi hath he loved. Verse 3. With these words, Samuel attempts to remind the Nephites that they have traditionally served God as his covenant people. And so in this relationship, the Lord acted as the Nephite king, from whom the people of Nephi have received reciprocal love. In contrast, Samuel presents his own people, the Lamanites, as those whom God hath hated because their deeds have been evil continually. Significantly, 
Samuel uses the verb hate in the same context in which it appears in the book of Hosea, chapter 9. God hated the Lamanites in a parallel manner to the way he hated the Ephraimites. How? Their evil acts place them outside of the boundary of this covenantal relationship. To me, it makes a ton of sense to see this in the context of the treaties of the day. And so we'll do this later when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, but the book of Deuteronomy is set in this vassal treaty pattern. And what's fascinating to me as I've studied these patterns, if you've been endowed, it's the same idea. The the rough pattern goes something like this. There's a recap of everything the king has done for you. And then there's this invitation to remember the king and to know what he's done for us. But then there's this whole litany of things that the king wants to enact laws that he presents to his kingdom that they covenant one by one to obey. And then towards the end, they're reminded of his covenantal love to be under his protection. They swear fealty to him through covenant. And then also anciently, an animal would die. There would be this sacrifice that represented as they decided to follow the king, they would have life. But if they chose to not, then may they die like the animal dies in the sacrifice, and then they would have a feast. And so there's a lot of that in Deuteronomy. There's a lot of that in these ancient treaties. I don't think from a modern perspective that Samuel's saying God hates the Lamanites. Short answer. I think there's a lot more going on here. Anyway, that's a little geek out moment on love and hate in Helaman 15. And I love the summary of what led the Lamanites to where they are today, because this is for all of us. Samuel, who clearly has gone through the process himself. I don't know what Samuel's past is. Is he, is he young enough that he was only a righteous Lamanite, or is he old enough that he was once a wicked Lamanite that was converted? Could it be that he was converted by Lehi and Nephi? Um, we don't know Samuel's history, but I love this this kind of process. Verse 7, for behold, you do know of yourselves and ye have witnessed that as many of them as, number one, brought to knowledge of truth. There's got to be a trigger. And they've brought to the knowledge of the truth. And quite often, that's the testimony of a friend. That's the testimony of a parent, something that shakes them. Brought to knowledge of the truth, which leads them to know that what they have been believing is not true. They have to cast off their previously held false beliefs and false traditions. They have to let go of what they were holding on to that they believed, which leads them to in a search for truth, which the next one in verse 7 is, which led them to believe the Holy Scriptures and the prophecies of the Holy Prophets. So once you come to know that the life you've lived is not right, it's not going to make you happy, you go searching for truth, you find truth in the Scriptures. Now, this is what I love about this verse, is the Scriptures are simply the means. And if you end there, you're never going to be happy. But the means are to lead you to Christ. So they led them to the scriptures, which leadeth them to faith on the Lord, and to repentance, which faith and repentance bringeth a change of heart unto them. So there's the process that the Lamanites went through. Something stirred them up. Something brought them to the knowledge of truth. I wonder if it was Lehi and Nephi in that prison. 
or maybe some friend of theirs testimony. Remember, Nephi only preached to 300 who then went out and preached to the whole Lamanite nation. So somewhere along the line, I'd like to think that Samuel heard the testimony of a friend that shook him up, and he realized that the way he'd been living was not right. He found the Scriptures, he searched the Scriptures, and found Christ in the Scriptures. And Jesus led him to repent and to change. And that is a symbol of how all of us need to change. Cast off our unbelief, turn to the Scriptures, find Jesus, and then let him guide our life. Love that summary. He, he prophesies of the coming redemption of the Lamanites. If you read Helaman 15, 7 through 13, he essentially says that the Lamanites are not going to be destroyed. And he even throws this at the Nephites. He says, oh, by the way, verse 11, your guy Zenos even talked about this. And so that's a big part of his message. And to me, I really think his message to them is, yeah, you guys are going to get wrecked. We're going to be preserved. Your shot is repentance. The Lamanites, they don't have what you guys have, but um, they're going to return. Look at verse 16. Therefore, saith the Lord, I will not utterly destroy them, the Lamanites, but I will cause that in the day of my wisdom, they shall return again unto me, saith the Lord. By the way, a lot of Helaman has that word return, return in the text, and also as a synonym with the word repent. And in Hebrew, it's the same word. Shuv is return or repent. And if you really want to nerd out on that word, to me, it means to return home, to come home. And, and so that's it, repentance. And could it be that we now live in the day of his wisdom? Yeah, I think that we do. this is the day that the Lamanites and all the other lost houses of Israel are coming home. They're coming home and they're finding Christ. And they're returning. So the 16th chapter is the story. You know, we've all seen the Arnold Freeberg poster, right, where Samuel's on the wall. And I like to substitute, instead of people shooting arrows, stormtroopers from Star Wars, because they can't hit anything. Sorry, I just had to say that. This is so funny, but they can't hit him. And notice verse 4 of chapter 16. It says, Nephi was out baptizing. So we've, you know, who knows what, ne you know, we don't have what Nephi is saying right at this time, but Nephi's out doing stuff. And it says in verse two, as many as there were who did not believe in the words of Samuel were angry with him and they cast stones at him upon the wall and also shot arrows at him as he stood upon the wall. But the spirit of the Lord was with them insomuch they couldn't hit him with their stones, neither with their arrows. And so when they saw this, they send guys to go get them. And, you know, in the culture of the day, uh, there was this idea that if you couldn't hit someone with arrows, that they had the God, the power of the gods with them, or they had some kind of supernatural power. And so I think that fits in the context of this, because these people are in the Americas. And so, you know, they're like, we got to go get them. And, and I would remind everyone that this is the miracle of the Book of Mormon. People sometimes ask, well, where are the miracles in the Book of Mormon? Because the New Testament and the Old Testament are filled with miracles. Joshua holds the sun steel. Moses walks on the water, or parts the water. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus heals so many people, the blind see. And as you read through the Book of Mormon, you don't find the plethora of miracles that you find in other books of Scripture. But there is one main miracle repeated many times. 
We saw Nephi with his brethren. We saw Abinadi before the, the priests of Noah. We saw it with the stripling warriors. We see it again here with Samuel. The miracle of the Book of Mormon is preservation. That God can preserve his people. I like that. And if we, if, if we take that repetition and that, I mean, he, it's almost as if the Lord says, I'm going to remove all the other miracles so that you focus on this message. I want you to see this message, that the miracle of the Book of Mormon is the miracle of preservation. And here we are in the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of a war of words and a tumult of opinion, in the middle of people yelling and screaming and evil everywhere. The miracle of the Book of Mormon is preservation. Preservation of our families, preservations of our faith, preservation of our church. And if the Lord's saying anything, he's trying to say, I will keep and preserve and protect you if we keep his covenant. Of that, I I just testify. And even though Samuel was physically protected, it's more a spiritual protection that we wish upon ourselves. And that is the miracle of those who believe the words of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Going back to that very first chapter, Nephi says, I will show you that the tender mercies of the Lord are upon those. And he talks about deliverance. And I think a synonym might be preservation. And that seems to be the miracle of the Book of Mormon. Do you remember how we've talked about the Antichrist, Bryce? It seems like their same arguments are popping up in here, right? Yep. Where Which they is say, so ironic because in verse 20, they say, we can't believe in something we can't see. If we could see it, we could believe in yeah. it. Which is one more chapter later. In Third Nephi chapter 1, they're going to see the great sign, and then what are they going to do? Well, we can't believe in it. And so which is it? Do you need to see it to believe in it? Because as soon as you saw it, you found reasons not to believe in it. So is believing seeing? Is seeing believing? I just think the irony here is just striking. Yeah. We can't believe it if we can't see it, and then they see it and still don't believe it. And then the guessed right verse is verse 16. Oh, you guys may have, you know, we're in Helaman 16, 16. They guess some things right. Some of their arguments are going to be those same kind of things, that they're good guessers. Verse 18, it's not reasonable that Christ will come. There's the F word again, right? We've seen that in previous podcasts. You're Ooh. foolish for believing in Christ. Yeah. And I see that all the time on social media today. People are trying to suggest that you're foolish for believing in Christ. And don't believe it. That's an antichrist tactic yeah. to get you to walk away away from him. It's not reasonable that Joseph should translate a book of Scripture. It's not reasonable that God should speak to men today. It's not reasonable that such a being as Christ shall come. It's the same argument we've seen from the very beginning. Same as the earlier chapters we've talked about. They want to keep us in ignorance, verse 20. They want us to be their servants, verse 21, that we may yield unto them. So those are the same arguments. But then it ends in Helaman with this idea of contentions, being stirred up, rumors and contentions upon the face of the land, that Satan is stirring people up. And so if you think about the end of Helaman, this really hit me as I was pondering this. Christ's birth is now only a couple years away, and as the book of Helaman comes to a close, Mormon has painted this picture of a fragmented society, deeply divided, characterized by conflicts among its factions. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's any relevance to the book of Helaman. Pattern of our day. Division. Overcoming division. Being one. 
I think of that scripture where the Lord says, be one, and if you're not one, you're not mine. Unity. I think of the intercessory prayer right before he heads to Gethsemane. Jesus prays that we would be one. Unity and togetherness, oneness, in spite of living in a society with division. Let it start in our homes. I think if we say, you know what, this world might be divided, but in this home, we are united. In this marriage, we are united, and we focus where we can. We focus in the inner circles of our lives and make sure there's no division there. I think we're preparing for the coming of Jesus into our home if we get division out. And with that, we thank you for listening. Enjoy Helaman. It's a wonderful book. We'll see you next time for Third Nephi. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.